As the kids are uh, dismissed, I invite you, uh, if you brought a Bible with you or it's in your um, liturgy today, our passage of focus in Luke chapter 1. I'll say it is uh, really cool to be here um, in this building and with, uh, and with you guys of all that God has done. Um, I bring greetings from uh, Covenant Bozier. We talk about um, and celebrate with you all the time as we get updates of what God is doing um, in, this, um, in this church. I love your pastors. I love uh, Weston and Justin both. I love uh, Weston's ability to take really complex ideas and like bring them down where I can understand them. Um, and I am, I'm always looking up words that he says, too. It adds to my... Uh, Repertoire, and then uh, Justin uh, can do just about anything, um, which I love that about him. He's like, you need a website, I can do that. You need to start a nonprofit, I can do that. You need to set up QuickBooks, I can do that. You need to build a house, we can do that. Um, he's just one of those guys. Um, in the text, in Luke chapter one and verse thirty-nine, in those days Mary arose and went in haste to the hill country. To the town of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for, leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Pray with me. And as I pray aloud, if you would just pray silently right where you're at, would you ask Holy Spirit to speak to you? The God that created everything, the one in whom we've talked about and sung about and read the Holy Scriptures about, do you pray that he would speak to your heart? God, we've gathered... Yes, out of tradition, but also yes, with expectation that we would encounter you. As we sang a moment ago, that we would behold you. Jesus, that we would see you in your right place, high and lifted up, the right hand of the Father, as our advocate interceding for us. And Holy Spirit, that we would acknowledge your work even in our midst today, of leading us to all truth, as the Gospel of John would record it. You would bring conviction and encouragement. You would make us alive with you again. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.
I love the Christmas story, and I love all things Christmas. Um, We've been listening to Christmas music since uh, the return from the beach on our fall break in mid-October. I'm not kidding. It felt a little weird, still staying between our toes, but we're listening to Christmas music. And we have tried to um, just get everything out of Christmas that we can. Uh, You know, it started uh, with one tree, and now we have a tree in every room of the house, um, all different. It looked like, uh, you know, an elf threw up in our house somewhere. Um, that's just, we, we, and I, I love Chris. I love all the, uh, the nostalgia of it, the, the traditions of it. But when we come to this moment, even in this place, I feel like more than I need Christmas, I need Advent. And the difference, uh, you can miss it, but Christmas, as we've made it, normally is more about what we receive. It's normally about the gifts and uh, the nostalgia, the songs, the rituals. But on this last uh, Sunday before Advent, we're reminded of what Advent is. Advent is the appearing of Jesus in the midst of the brokenness. And we live between the first and the second Advent. And we celebrate the first Advent, even in the text today, and we long for and look toward the second Advent when Jesus comes and restores all things and brings to fulfillment his kingdom. As we come to this Christmas story, if we're not careful, we're going to jump in the middle of it without realizing the context that for thousands of years, God's people had held on to a promise that the Messiah was coming. That promised seed was given way back in Genesis where our first parents fell into sin and things were broken and they were banished from the garden. And yet God promised that there was coming a day, one, the Messiah, who would restore all the things that had been broken. And they were hopeful and they were ready. And the harder that life got, the more they longed for his appearance. But in today's text, we see this unique shift between this longing for something that we kind of hope for, a light at the end of the tunnel. We move from longing to anticipation, where it's right in front of us. If longing is this hard-to-describe, hopeful feeling that someday something is coming, someday in the future something will be different, Then anticipation is this, on the edge of your seat, I can't sleep tonight because tomorrow it's going to be here. I recognize this when I was young, probably 10. I wanted this uh, sand camo Apache helicopter, G.I. Joe helicopter, and I really wanted it. As a matter of fact, the last time um, that I got really disciplined from my dad, uh, he used a belt, um, I was throwing a fit on the little toy aisle of Walmart because I wanted this Apache helicopter and I wanted it now. And thinking back, I was pretty old to throw a fit like that, um, which is, you know, rightful that my dad, you know, dealt with me right there on the toy aisle. Of, uh, you could do that back then. You can't do that these days. Fast forward a couple months to it's getting close to Christmas and there's a box under the tree that looks like it possibly could be that Apache helicopter. And my mom had one of these rules. If we, like, you know, started peeking around, or if we guessed it correctly what was under the tree, we didn't get it the next day. (laughs) Seriously. So I'm guessing weird things, like, it must be a toaster. Or uh, 
And sure enough, I can't sleep that night knowing the Apache helicopter is under the tree. And I get up the next morning and we do all the things. And my dad's kind of practice was you could see your stocking gifts, but you couldn't open any presents under the tree until we read the Christmas story. And I was like, well, let's get with it. Let's get through the Christmas story. I tore into that. And yes, it was absolutely, it was the Apache helicopter. My longing for it turned to anticipation the night before and to fulfillment the next morning. And maybe even of more consequence, we see this in our lives when we long for things to be fixed, or maybe there's a prayer in your heart. There was a time in our lives where we long to be parents. And Ashley and I tried to get pregnant, and we couldn't. And one year turned into two, turned into three. And that longing was unfulfilled until the day that it wasn't. And you know, the pregnancy test said, you know, however many lines is on there. I don't know why it makes it so complicated. You know, this was when the time of like eight lines means there's a good chance. <laughs> and that longing turned into anticipation. And then for nine months, you're thinking, man, this time next year, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a dad. And then the night before that we're going to go in and have a baby, that anticipation is so real. And this is what we see in this text today. We see longing of a promised Messiah thousands of years coming, shifting to anticipation with, man, things are about to really change. And the characters in our story today, the real people, Elizabeth and Mary, and they get to experience this anticipation. As we look back in the Old Testament from the days of Samuel, the coming Messiah was predicted by the prophets, anticipated by the people. King David would even sing about the coming Messiah in his messianic songs. Isaiah wrote poetry about the Prince of Peace, and Jeremiah preached in the streets about the righteous branch, which would come from David's line. The Israelites had been waiting centuries for this liberator, redeemer, and healer, and they longed for it and prepared for it, this great sign of God that would come. And that sign came through angels. First to Zechariah as he's doing his duty in the temple that I think you've even read about a few weeks ago. Elizabeth would be the mother of John the Baptist who would In turn, prepare the way for Christ. She was a faithful Jewish woman, and she anticipated the coming of the Savior. So when Zechariah told her, hey, it's going to happen, that you're going to have a baby, despite being barren for so many years, she didn't doubt for a second. It was a surprise, yet it was something she had longed for and even anticipated. It was something wondrous and unexpected and Yet she was prepared. Elizabeth had anticipated this miraculous thing, just as the prophets had spoken. And this movement from longing to anticipation followed these angelic visitations, first to Zechariah, then to Mary, and then to Joseph. And I think we learn a lot from these people, real people with these real experiences, real dreams of their own, whose worlds were turned upside down by the announcement that Jesus was coming And Luke, the author of the text uh, of the gospel that bears his name, is the only author to include all three angelic visitations to Zechariah, then to Mary, 
and then Joseph. And in this way, I think what Luke's doing is he's helping, he's helping us see. He's helping the Gentiles who his book was written to, all those who are non-Jewish, and he's helping us see really two truths. Just going to lay the foundation, and then we'll provide some application from this. First, that God was uniquely at work in the lives of these two women, and then the birth, certainly, of these two men. It's a certain part. This is such an important part of the Christmas story, and we blow past it, I think, because it's so familiar to us. It, it originates and is guided by the sovereign God. It wasn't easy for a Roman official to believe a poor Jewish carpenter executed as a criminal was in fact the son of God and that such a man could be the eternal king and savior of the world was so far from their understanding, so hard for them to accept. So Luke starts at the beginning to show that this man and his forerunner weren't ordinary people. The sovereign God of the universe ordained and ordered their births and certainly their destinies. How do we see this? One, through the angel. God predicted that this would take place before it happened. In verse 13 of chapter 1, it says, Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. And in verse 24, it says, After these days, Elizabeth conceived. The only thing that makes this kind of authoritative prediction possible is the sovereignty of God, that he can say what's going to happen but he, because he controls what's going to happen. And he sends his angel beforehand to predict these pregnancies rather than afterwards to explain what's going on because he wants to demonstrate unmistakably that God is the one in charge. This is God's work. These births weren't unusual coincidences found by God and then used for his purposes. They were ordained and ordered by his sovereign will, which is incredible. The other way God's power and control is seen in these miraculous, is in the miraculous nature of these births. They are not just predicted, they are humanly impossible. And Luke goes through the effort to describe exactly what's going on. Verse 7, it says, Elizabeth had no child because she was barren and advanced in years. But after John was conceived in verse 36, the gospel tells us that behold, your cousin Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son and is in the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing, for with God, nothing will be impossible. God's purpose in bringing John and Jesus into the world through humanly impossible births remind us all that nothing is too hard for him, that he is in control here and something unexpected and stupendous is beginning to happen around the world. Think about that just for a second in your own lives. Nothing It's too hard for God. Nothing. Think about the most impossible thing you could fathom and follow it with, but nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is impossible for him. The Old Testament reads as a long summary of the miraculous things that God had done to display his strength and might. And that's one of the two truths that Luke wants to teach us by paralleling these announcements of the birth of Jesus and John, namely that God is uniquely at work. These are God's men. It's always good, too, when we read Scripture that we would pause for a second and reflect upon it and ask ourselves this very question. 
where is God at work now? Where do we see his fingerprints in our lives? The other lesson I think the gospel writer is trying to get us to see here is that we would see right away the wrong and the right way to, dis- to respond to God's promise. The contrast is unavoidable in the text. And again, this is, happens before we get to our text. We're going to get there in just a second. The contrast is unavoidable when we see how Zechariah on one hand and Mary on the other respond to Gabriel's promise that God's going to give them a child and make that child great. Luke clearly wants us to see and follow Mary's example and not Zechariah's. To read both responses for you quickly so that you can see, Zechariah responds to the angel Gabriel, how will I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. As if the presence of the angel itself wasn't enough to convince Zechariah. The angel says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you good news. And as a consequence, behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things come to pass, because you did not believe my words. Zechariah didn't believe Gabriel's promise. He was in a spot almost like Abraham, but he didn't respond like Abraham. Zechariah wavered in unbelief. And then Luke contrasts that with Mary's response. Just right before our text, in our text, blessed is she who believed. This is how Elizabeth greets her. Blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. How did Mary's faith express itself? When the angel was finishing predicting the miraculous birth of Jesus, Mary said, how can this be since I have no husband? Note the difference. Zechariah asks, how can I really believe you? Mary says, how's this all going to work? Zechariah wants more evidence. Mary asks for an explanation. Zechariah responds with doubt. Mary responds with belief. Luke's point is clear. Let's be like Mary when God speaks. Let's give a response of obedience and trust and faith in the God that works, that speaks. To dive in just a little bit further, there's a few things in the Magnificat that I want to look at as we move from longing to anticipation to partial fulfillment. Really, her overall response to God, Mary's response to God is amazing. And I'm going to put these under four headings, and and I use these a lot. These aren't mine. I did not come up with them. Um, These words, rely, obey, relax, and expect. And if you take notes, I'd encourage you to write those down. I'll explain a little bit later. But I read these in one of Tim Keller's uh, small group material in the book of Galatians. It was never even published, and I think it's the most brilliant thing he's ever done. Um, these words, because it helps us gauge whether we are really walking and living in the truth of the gospel at all time. Rely, obey, relax, and expect. And I love these because we see these in the text. We see these in this text today. 
of Mary's first relying on God. Mary relies on God. This young and poor and probably illiterate teenager has this incredible heart for God. As she busts into song here, she lists at least 15 attributes of God in this one little song. Her faith in God is incredible and unmistakable. She says in verse 46 that he's Lord, which means master and teacher. That he's Savior. Mary, a sinner just like you and I, she knew she needed a Savior. That God is omniscient. That he knows me and he knows everything about me. That he's mighty. That he's personal. On and on we could go. She's just listing them off from her heart to us. It's very evident that through every step of this, Mary relies on God. When difficulty comes, there's often this crossroad of faith. And Mary's faced with this incredible challenge that she has to make a decision, not like, I mean, certainly maybe more weighty, but not unlike the decisions that we make every day, the decision to worry or to worship. Again, this is not a wealthy princess. She's a peasant girl, probably incredibly poor from this no-name town, may have had only 100 people in it, too small for any type of school, and she finds out she's pregnant with God. Most of us, would, can you imagine, would begin to worry immediately. What if Joseph isn't here when she returns? What if I can't afford to take care of my baby? What if my parents disown me or my friends never talk to me again? Think about the incompetence that you feel before your first child. And now exponentially magnify that, that you're carrying the Son of God. Imagine being a teenager with no hospital, no birth plan. Don't you think she had every right to worry? And yet what does she do? She worships. She had a top-down view of life. She had built her life on the rock. She knew that God was in control. He said that this would happen, and I trust him, which is why Elizabeth greeted her With that very phrase, blessed is she who believed. There is such great joy that comes when we put our trust into something that cannot fail. Hasn't the past two years taught us what we think is so secure and so predictable actually means nothing? Something so small that we couldn't even see with our eyes has upended the world's economy, has brought to death so many people, has shifted, has, I mean, can you, just a great impact on our own lives. Mary's life is no longer about her dreams. It's about allowing God to seize her life and use it for his purposes. And there's great joy and freedom when we believe this. That we aren't defined by our job or our careers or even our circumstances, but we come to a place where we can say that we're defined by the fact that we've received the grace of God through the person of Jesus. That we are a channel of his great grace and mercy, that we get to play a part in the great story of God. Mary relies on God. It's the first word, rely. Can I ask you if you're relying on God? Can you point to the places in your life, to the brokenness around you where you're leaning all your weight on God, not hedging your bets? 
You're saying, God, if you don't come through, I don't know how we're going to make it. Mary lived this life relying on God. Second, that she obeys. In verse 38, right after the angel told us what happened, she didn't argue. She just obeyed. She says, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. How much better would things go for us if we just obeyed the Lord's direction? We obeyed his commands. I tell you what, pastoring would be a lot easier if people just read the Bible and did what God said. I tell you what, my life would be a lot easier if I just read the Bible and did what God said. We got this opportunity to meet the greatest church planter of, um, of, the, of the modern world. He's a church planter in China, and we went down to Austin to hear him preach, and he's on this big panel, and they're asking him. He planted like, you know, 20,000 churches, which can you imagine? I mean, you know, look at the gray from planting one church. Uh, and uh, Rick Warren was actually, and John Piper were both interviewing uh, this guy. And they asked him the secret. Tell us the strategy of how, how do you mobilize the people? How do you, how do you get them geared up to, to plant these churches? And he said, it was really simple. We read what God says in the Bible, and then we go do it. And he said, and so they're pushing back. That's all the strategy? Yeah, we meet every week. We read God's word. And we said, okay, what did he say? Okay, you go do that and come back and report next week. How'd it go? That's the strategy. It's pretty simple, but it's not simplistic. If you've ever tried to do that, as you read God's word, sometimes it's greatly offensive to our own pride. We see in Mary that she disobeyed. She didn't have all the details. As a matter of fact, she's probably got more questions than answers. But that doesn't stop her obedience. She relies and she obeys. You know, God rarely tells us how everything's going to play out. At least in my life, he doesn't. But you know what he often does? He often leads us to the next step. Have you found that about God? He just holds our hand and says, come on, it'll be fine. The step of faith is in front of us. The third is relax. I love this too in a moment. That could have been dominated by fear. She seems so relaxed and worshipful. Only God could do such things in our hearts. Part of the Advent focus is peace. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. The shalom of God, the common grace of God, yes, absolutely. But there's a certain peace of God that Colossians talks about. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, it says. This peace is us returning to God what is his. During the pandemic, I read this little book by John Eldridge, and he has a little prayer in there, which was so great. It's a prayer that he prays a hundred times a day. And the prayer is this. God, I give these people and these problems back to you. If we're not careful, we try to be the Messiah and Savior of all things, don't we? We try to get in there and fix all the things as if from our effort. And God does use our effort, absolutely. But 
It's not solely our effort, right? And I love that little prayer, and I begin praying it. God, I give these people and these problems back to you. That's this prayer of peace. to see that happening here. You know, we sanitize the Christmas story so much. We've heard it so much, so we sanitize it. The Christmas story, if you didn't know anything about it and we're just reading it, it's a mess. I mean, it's worse than a, than a Jerry Springer show. Am I dating myself? No one else probably even knows who Jerry Springer is. A teenager who's a virgin that's going to carry the Son of God and then sent to Bethlehem a couple days before the baby's due and only to get there, there'd be no room in any kind of hotel for them, much less a birth plan or a doctor or do none of that. Oh, look, here's a little space in a manger with animal dung everywhere. This is crazy. And then after the child is born, the magi show up that had left months and months before in order to find him. And then after that, the angel appears again to Joseph and says, hey, listen, uh, you better get out of here. It's about to get crazy. And so they pick up and they go all the way to Egypt to live in a refugee community as immigrants. And then the Christmas story ends with this crazy King Herod killing all the babies. So the Christmas story is a mess. And yet in the midst of all that, there's Mary relying on God, obeying God, and seeming to be relaxed with the peace of God as she busts into this song, saying in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary lets God be God. Most of the time we find the absence of peace when we try to be God. And so she, from her soul, I love this, her soul magnifies the Lord. In verse 48, for he's looked on my humble estate. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Do you see how all of this is Godward? Mary's prayer is Godward. It's not inward. Because she has, a, she has the right view. In verse 48, I love that too, that little phrase that says, from now on, as if all of life had changed right before her eyes. And when we experience God in this way, it changes us forever. Have you had one of those from now on moments where God stepped into your world and changed everything? This is peace that only God can bring. It's good to take inventory of those every once in a while, maybe in a prayer journal or in your time with the Lord or even talking with a spouse or your family, doing an Advent devotional even, to talk about those from now on moments where God stepped into your story and radically changed it, where there was an answer prayer, certainly your faith story of coming to faith, where there's something that you've been praying for, whether God showed up in this unexpected, miraculous way. God is a personal God. This is what we see here even in this. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things. Look at those last two words. For me. God is a personal God. 
My prayer is that this Christmas season, you can have one of these from now on moments in your very life. Maybe even in this room, you've been kind of checking out Christianity or following Jesus just in the margins. God, I'm going to give you just the free time I have. Maybe you've been living for yourself and making your story the most important story, but God's working in your heart even now to start seeing things a little differently. This becomes a from now on moment in your life. I pray God gives you some of those. Look at this last word. Rely, obey, relax, and then expect. There's tension here. Real joy is found in the miraculous ordinary. I know that's an oxymoron, but it describes so much of our life, does it not? It addresses one of the tensions that I certainly feel, maybe we all feel as we experience in the Christmas text, we read it and it's just supernatural event and supernatural event. And we got visions and dreams and, and angels. And I mean, it's, it's just incredible. And yet I look at my life and I don't see a whole lot of miraculous things. And that's the tension between supernatural intervention of God through miraculous power and the boring, hard days filled with hard work and the difficult but common human experience. See, our faith is fundamentally miraculous. I mean, divine intervention and interruption. Ephesians says we were hostile to God. We were enemies of God. Our mind darkened. Our understanding blacked out. And yet God steps in and brings light and brings truth brings conviction and peace and joy and all the things that he brings, and it radically changes our life. This, our faith is fundamentally miraculous. However, our walk of faith is experienced mostly ordinary, or at least it feels that way. It often feels discouraging to come to these Christmas texts and see all the angels, and I, I've never met an angel. No angels ever showed up in my dreams. I dream about bad Taco Bell. That's what I dream about, like not... Not this. There's a danger that we fall, a lot of us, on one of two sides of the pendulum of an overrealized or an underrealized eschatology. Eschatology is this, this, the study of, of, of the end, of, of how God is going to bring this all into fulfillment. The overrealized eschatology is we expect this never-ending, happy ending right now. But that's what we have to look forward to. It's not what we experience right now. We don't expect that happy ending in its fullness today. Every longing that we have for a resistant free life, every longing for a pain-free life, in this text, for a Rome-free life, those are desires for heaven, for glory. We are wanting the kingdom of God to come in its fullness now, but we're not quite here that. It's not time for that yet. We still suffer pain and opposition and difficulty and rebellion, and we live in this space between of the partial fulfillment and the complete fulfillment of God ushering in his kingdom. So that means in this space between, we hurt and we hope. Every time we suffer disappointment, don't think that God has abandoned you or let down his end of the deal. This is why believing a true gospel is so important. God never promised the end of pain and difficulty while on the earth. 
That's an over-realized eschatology to expect that now. But there's also this trap we fall into is an under-realized eschatology. The under-realized eschatology is one that denies the kingdom of God at work at all in our lives. That all healing or all comfort or all peace will only happen in the future. But that denies all that Christ has done, that Christ is risen and the Spirit is given. There is healing and provision and joy and peace and comfort at work in the lives of believers. Just not in its fullness yet. Rome is still a bully on the block and life is still hard. So we live in this space between. But you know what I really think the danger is? Most of the church, I'm not necessarily, this is not maybe an indictment of your church, but most of the church in the West is no eschatology. We have given most of our lives to the most trivial things. And we just numb it on phones and binging shows and just blowing through life without ever a thought to where might God be at work. And he's still whispering. He's still calling us to join him. This is why I love our Sunday morning gatherings. This is why I implore you and our church to make it a priority to be here because there's just something about it that lifts our eyes from the mundane and right in front of us and to the glorious and what God's doing. It lifts our eyes to the hills, as the psalmist would say, where our help comes from. Part of Mary's song is prophetic about what God's done, about what he's doing, but about what he will do. He has helped his people, she says. He's remembered his promises and his mercy, ultimately sending Jesus to reconcile people back to God. Like a sheep without a shepherd, Jesus would say with his own mouth. Wandering aimlessly, just reacting to our circumstances. But Jesus was coming that we could have real life, real, purposeful, meaningful life. And this is why Mary's heart is full. The Holy Spirit is revealing God's plan of salvation through Jesus. And he's finally here. And she's on her tiptoes looking over the edge, just dreaming about what it might look like. And so Mary gets to meet the love of God in a person. This is what we celebrated Advent, the appearing of Jesus, the appearing of the very love of God through the person of Jesus. Isn't it incredible? What does this mean for us? I read in one of my Advent devotionals last week, let me read this to you, from a manger in Bethlehem, God leaned over the whole world and said, it's your move. I love that. Friends, when we talk about those four words, maybe you would take this moment of reflection before we come to the table and you would just ask those questions. Am I relying on God? I try to do this every night in my life. As I lay on my head on the pillow, I just look back over my day. Am I relying on God? What significant weight have I put that if God doesn't show up, this is not going to go well? Am I obeying what he's told me? Some of us, even in my own life, I experience, God has clearly told me what the next step is, who I am to love, who I am to encourage, what I am to give, what I am to give up, and I don't want to do it. Relax. Am I walking in the peace of God? Do I find that I'm trying to be the Savior, or am I giving these people and these problems back to you, God? 
and then expect. What are you expecting God to do in 2022? You have a list? Maybe that'd be a great discipline as we close. If God could just do one thing in 2022, what would you ask him for? Bow with me in prayers. Wesson comes up to prepare the table. But just right where you're at, would you ask that question? If God just does one thing for you in 2022, what are you asking for? What would you want? Immediately our minds might go to the maybe worldwide revival, maybe. Maybe what we should ask, but in the very depths of your heart, what, what do you really want? We serve a big God and we should be asking big things. God, I pray over your people. Lord, that you would do some incredible things in our life. For those that are outside the faith family today, I pray that they would take a step of faith out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Many in this room may have had a really hard year, hard couple years. Their souls are weary and beat down and discouraged. I pray this morning you would infuse hope in them that they could move from just longing maybe one day to anticipation, that, Lord, you're right on the cusp of just bringing the fulfillment of your kingdom. For those in here that are busy doing your work, Lord, would you strengthen them in the power of your might? Lord, thank you for Advent. We need Advent so badly. Lord, you continue to appear in our lives in great and in small ways. Help us to rely and obey and relax and expect incredible things from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.